We're going to read from Matthew 5, verse 13 in a moment. I want, to, I want to just say a quick prayer before we get into this. Lord Jesus, we want to have an appropriate sense of awe when we consider your greatness and your purposes and your plans, but also the sacrifice of your very life for us as your children. Please, Lord, still our hearts before you. Open our ears to understand your purposes. And Lord, empower us for your work in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to um, read from Matthew 5.13. I just want to quickly read uh, just a few verses, and familiar verses. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're about halfway through a series that we started called Church in the City. And we're wanting to kind of look at what it means to feel, both as individuals and also as as a kind of corporate body, what it means to feel a double call. That you feel, on the one hand, a call to to the church, to this church. And I hope that you begin to feel something of the challenge as we unfold this, what it means to, to love a church like Jesus loves his church. We, um, a lot of people struggle with uh, a sense of passion and commitment to their church. And it ought to convict us all when we consider what Jesus, how Jesus treasures and prizes his church. And I just want us to keep that in our minds, that the church is primary, that Jesus is passionate about his bride. And we're called to love not only the worldwide church, but local expressions of church and give ourselves to the church in commitment to it or to her. But there's also this other theme which we've been picking up on, which may be really new to some of you, but is so sort of woven into the scriptures, and we've been trying to unpick it and trying to show you aspects of this theme from different places, which is the call to the city. And what it means for us as believers, not just to think of being in the city as something that we are doing to further our own life aims and life goals, but what it means rather to be taken by Jesus and put into the city for the purposes of God in the city. And when we have a, full, a grasp of those two things, I think that we will be not only potent as individuals being used by God, but also potent as a church. I think God wants to change some of the things that we do as a church and redirect us and our orientation and our focus and what it means to be a blessing to the city. Let me just start with a little bit of a story, um, just to kind of illustrate just an aspect of what I'm talking about today, which is to do with the theme of influence. I know a a church in central London um, where the preacher took his job very seriously to preach God's word, and was a humble and faithful man in that role for some years here in central London, and 
His pattern was to take a book of the Bible and work through books of the Bible as we seek to do here, just each week opening up the next passage and teaching it. And then one week on the Friday, with the sermon all prepared and wrapped and ready to go um, for Sunday, on the Friday received a call to the church offices that a president of an East African nation was going to be present in church that Sunday. And this man had visited the church in the past, but never under this man's ministry. And he was going to show up with an entourage and just to let them know that we're coming, because it's a bit of a weird surprise when uh, a president walks into your church just on a normal Sunday morning, isn't it? So uh, that was known. Now the sermon that week was from the book of Judges on a man called Eglon, who was a big fat king, who was a bit of a horrible king, and he met an, a gruesome end. And uh, the, the sermon was looking at his, the themes of how God deals with evil rulers, and, um, and particularly paranoid ones, and, uh, and men with a tendency towards being dictators. And it was just interesting, because this man had been in the news, the man who'd visited church had been in the news over the years for um, slightly shady dealings and being at times a dangerous man. And not, not your kind of standard dictator, but, um, but certainly, you know, how these things go. Not had the potential to cause great harm and uh, was, had some questionable decisions over the years. And so Sunday came and the president arrived. His entourage filled two, two rows, um, bodyguards and all the rest of it, men from the embassy. And he listened intently to the sermon. And uh, the preacher didn't change his message, didn't alter it, didn't um, adjust knowing that the guy was coming. Actually didn't know much about the guy, but just preached what was there in front of him in the text. And heard a few days later on the news that this particular country was going to be holding elections. And that this man had decided, and you know this is very significant sometimes in certain countries, had decided to let the election result pass peacefully and not contest the result. And there was a massive sigh of relief in the nation as a whole, as well as in the nations, that this was going to happen. Because if it didn't happen that way, there might have been bloodshed and there certainly would have been upheaval. And it was a huge and momentous moment for that particular country. And actually that preacher was my dad who sat here today. And um, a couple of lessons when I'm remembering that story was... One, that sometimes it's just the moments in life that make the biggest difference. Um, You know, whether lives were saved from that, we'll never know. But I suspect they were. Sometimes it's just the moments in life that can make the biggest difference. In a sense, the course of a nation was altered, I believe, through the power of the word of God that came to bear on that man's life. That he made that announcement the very week that he'd been at church listening to that message. The moments in life can make a big difference, but we've got to also understand that this is only possible against the backdrop of a life of preparedness. Sometimes, while significant moments are few and far between, you are only going to do the right thing in those moments when you continue being yourself and the self that you are is the self that God has shaped you to be ready for that moment. And more than that, God trusts you in moments when he looks at your faithfulness and your track record. And I I feel 
very, I reflected on this a number of times over the years, how I really believe that um, my dad's faithfulness in his ministry was one of the reasons why God entrusted him to be a messenger that day to that man and why it had a massive impact. In one sense, it's a footnote in the story of dad's ministry, but looked at from another perspective, it's the kind of story that makes its way into Bible stories, doesn't it? Of God using men to change, change aspects of the course of history. And I want you to just think about that for a moment, because what we're thinking about is the call to influence, the call to the city, and the call to be salt and light. I want to say a few things to you this morning, beginning with this. I believe that we are called as believers to influence the world. We're called as believers to influence the world. And now some of you are not Christian. And I know that immediately as I suggest that, that perhaps there's something in you that kind of recoils at the idea of Christians having it as their aim to influence the world in any way. Because often people say, that's the very problem with religion. You religious people ought to take your religion and put it in a box and put it to the margins of life and let us have a shared secular space that we can all agree on. So this is secularism in the middle and it's common ground that we can all stand on and walk on and agree on. And religion belongs at the very margins of life. That's a very common narrative these days. Even just this week we had news of people who wanted to take religion out of schools, particularly Christianity, out of schools so that the schools can be secular or, which is understood to be neutral. And uh, we, can, we, can, we can extract religion from the secular space. That's the way people often think about these things. But there's a couple of problems with that. One is a, a kind of a logical problem that we, we falsely assume that secularism is just a default neutral position. But actually it's not. It's a weird freak position of the modern Western world. Most people in the most of the world and through history have not been secularists. That is a, a particular viewpoint that has arisen in our present context and is the, the kind of the, the waters we swim in, the, the air we breathe, and that we come to think it's just normal and natural to think like a secularist, so much so that it's so hard for people now to believe that God is there at all. You've got to realize how unusual and weird that is in the course of history and how it is actually just one faith expression among many of, of various people groups all through history. Secularism is just one faith expression. It's not neutral ground. It's not a default position of the human mind or the human heart. It's a freak of the modern world, if that makes sense. So I, I don't think that we can concede that ground. There's still the battle for ideas. Are the secularists right? That is still a question. And of course, my answer would obviously be no. But there's also an experiential problem there, that we are all influencing the world all the time, whether we choose to or not. And so for the secularist to turn to the Christian and say, we need you to stop influencing the world, is to say, basically, we want you to stop being yourself. We want you to be a hypocrite when you enter into secular space. And one of the tenets, apparently, of, of a secular world is its tolerance, its flexibility to absorb different viewpoints. If that's true, then we all, 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 we, it ought to be the case that all of us can embody what we believe and express it in the public space. So I just want to just take that anxiety away from you if, you are, if that's you, how you hear it when I say Christians are called to influence the world. Friends, that's fine. We're all called to influence the world from a place of conviction, from what you believe. Now, just focusing in then on, on what Jesus is telling us here in this passage. 
Consider what he's calling us to. And I think three things are true of Christian influence in the world. That we are optimistic, we are holistic, and we are futuristic. Let me quickly show you what I mean by those three things. The first thing, we're optimistic in the sense that we expect that by God's grace, wherever we are, we're going to have an impact on the world around us. You think about the, the analogies Jesus uses here with salt. The question is not whether salt is effective at what it does. You ever tip too much salt into your meal? You can't remove the thing, can you? And there's nothing you can do to cover it over. It's not, the question is not so much whether salt has an effectiveness. The only question is how salty you are. In other words, we're called to guard the quality of our saltiness of our lives. God ensures the impact. That when you're a salty person, influence is a natural result. By the way, just to explain, how can salt be more or less salty? As I understand it, I've heard this, I don't know whether it's true. I think that the the ancient Middle Eastern world used to extract salt, but it was a mixed product. It had salt uh, minerals, but also other minerals that came together. It wasn't as pure as our salt. And the salt minerals could be leached out if it was left out in a pile in the rain and leave just basically grit and gravel behind. And so Jesus, you know, they had this understanding, understood this concept of some salt being more salty than other salts, which we don't really get today because we just have table salt and it's either salty or it's not salt. It, you know what I mean? So we, we can't really get our head around this unless you understand the context. But in any case, it's kind of an irrelevant aside. The, the point is, the question is not, not whether salt's effective, but just whether you are salty. Similarly with light, Jesus says, just statements of fact here, he says a city on a, on a hill cannot be hidden. We have a massive optimism that when the things that we believe are on display, they begin to influence and impact people and situations all around us. It cannot be hidden. He says, people will see your good deeds. He has this massive sense of optimism that the problem isn't the potency of the light, it's just the quality of the faith we have, whether we're willing to display it or not. So we're optimistic that the minute that we begin to let our faith pervade and influence things, it starts to have an impact on the world all around us. We're optimistic. We're also holistic, which, by which I mean this, that we believe that every part of life is touched by our faith. These verses are not just speaking about the call to share the gospel, just that message of Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead to give new life to everyone. That is, of course, central and vital and important. But I don't believe that being salt and light is just about sharing those words. I think it is, it is a much broader picture than that. And what I mean is this. Think again about salt. He's speaking here of the flavor that begins to permeate the whole of your life. The way you do everything. The way you do your work. The way you relate to friends. The humor and the things you take delight in in your heart. The things you think about, the things you dwell upon, your goals and ambitions in life, all of this gets influenced by the salt in you and you become a salty person. It speaks of the flavor, the characteristic of your whole life, not just of a narrow sort of doctrinal statement that you might believe or assent to. And that also means that it affects every sphere of life as you are a salty person. It affects your workplace, it affects your friendships. It affects your family life. Everything around you is impacted by the fact that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. 
This has to be stated because so many people think that religion can be segmented and put into a narrow part of your life and existence. And I'd say that absolutely is not true. We're holistic in our understanding of the way the gospel changes everything around us. Think about light as well. When Jesus says here that people are going to see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven, often we naturally hear the phrase good works and we narrow it down to just religious things that we do or the kind of things you get scout badges for, right? Like helping an old lady cross the road, that kind of stuff. And you think, oh, that's what Jesus is talking about. But actually, when, when the Bible talks about good works, it doesn't mean that. It means, it means the whole of your life, your life product, like what you're doing with your time and energy. So he's speaking here of the pervasive influence. He says, everyone in the house is going to see the light in your life. Now, this is so important because what I'm trying to help you understand, friends, is that as a Christian, there is no part of your life that isn't touched by the fact that you are a Christian. When you fully grasp that, everything about what you do can, changes in character and flavor and your understanding of it. There's no sacred secular divide. It's all a part of Christ's remit and the way he wants to use you in the world. We're optimistic, we're holistic, and we're also futuristic. You know, some people in the world get paid huge sums to predict future technologies and trends. And some guys have had a track record of being extraordinarily accurate, like predicting the rise of television or of mobile phones long before they were invented, these kinds of things. And the more that a guy is... But really what they're doing is they're just making intelligent guesswork based on things that they see happening in the world. And that intelligent guesswork, as, they, as they're proved right, and often they have many wrong guesses as well, but as they're proved right, credibility builds on their reputation. So people start to listen to them more and they can charge more money. It's an interesting job, isn't it? I think a lot of you think, I wish I'd known about that job when I went to university. I'd like to be a futurist. It sounds interesting. But the Bible is futurist from beginning to end. And the difference with biblical futurism, of course, is that it's not just intelligent guesswork. It's impossible to guess some of the things that the Bible foretells. It has to be the, the work and the hand and the involvement of a living God that spans the, traject- of the, the, the story of millennia, bringing about results that he said would happen Long in advance. Now I want to show you the relevance of this in just a moment, but just if you trace just the, the theme of Jesus through the Bible, for example, you first hear about his, the prediction of his birth in the third chapter of the Bible, that a seed would be born to the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And then birth in that is the hope for a saviour. Some thousands of years later, there's the the word spoken to David that he's going to have a son who sit on David's throne and rule forever. Then a couple of hundred years later, you have the the prophecy of Daniel in in Daniel chapter 2 of an empire that would arise and become the biggest empire and fill the whole world. And this is given to Daniel who's in exile. You think about the plight of the Rohingya Muslims out in Southeast Asia. Basically, the Jews were in a similar situation when Daniel prophesied this. And they said, from among us, a ruler is going to rise, is going to rule the whole world. Can you see how unlikely that feels at that moment in history, 700 BC? 
And then, of course, 700 years later, Jesus is born. And no one who traces that story through and then looks at the result 2,000 years later can, in their sanest moments, deny that something extraordinary is going on here. God said he'd come, that he'd change the world, and here we are 2,000 years later, and Jesus, the influence of Jesus is not diminishing, but increasing with every year, every day. And I look at this and think, that means that God is credible. And when we as Christians understand our call to be influencers within the storyline of a, of a Bible that has been proved true from beginning to end, what does that do to your understanding of your place in London right now? What does that do to you? I think it does a couple of things. I think on the one hand, it shrinks you because you realize that your personal dreams and plans are much less important than you ever thought. Whatever... Maybe, you know, I don't want to be presumptuous, but for many of us, the reasons that brought you to the city are so unimportant when you factor them into the grand scale of what God is doing in the world. And that's the right sense of humility that you should have when you think that God's plan spans millennia and your, span, your plan spans a decade or something. It shrinks us. It humbles us. But at the same time, it enlarges us. It enlarges our understanding of our place in this city. Because the gospel we believe is not just a small thing about me and my relationship with God and personal forgiveness. Suddenly we understand that we're actors in a drama that is being unfolded across millennia and that your place matters in the plan of God. Could anything be more enlarging for your sense of purpose in life than to know that God wants to use you? Do you carry that sense of purpose in your day? I think every Christian should. I think it's implicit in what Jesus is saying here about when he says, you are salt, you are light. You're going to change the world is what he's saying. Now, I want us to park that thought for a moment. You're called to influence the world. And let's just turn our attention to the city for a few minutes now. Because we need to understand also that the city is a place of extraordinary influence. I mean, London, I also mean the city as an idea. Cities all around the world. When Jesus called us to be salt and light, he, obviously he doesn't specify where we need to be. And I think the, the real answer is everywhere. Christians need to be everywhere. We're pregnant with that sense, aren't we? That's why Christianity is always an outward-looking, spreading faith. It's always looking for new avenues and, and new mission opportunities to make Jesus known in all the world. So if you ask, where did Jesus intend us to be salt and light? The answer, of course, is everywhere. And I absolutely accept that. And I also accept that some people you know, rightly say, look, we've emphasized cities way too much in recent years. And that there's a, there's a desperate need for for the gospel to be in the suburbs and in in rural areas. And I accept all of these things. One of my best friends and closest friends in ministry is is Donnie Griggs, who's preached here, preached here last year. And he wrote um, this this little book, Small Town Jesus, which is an encouragement. He's in America, an encouragement to guys working in rural areas, churches, Christians in rural areas, who might be doing to think, oh, our work is unimportant and we we're not really part of what God's doing in the world because it's all happening in, in the cities. And uh, 
you know, to one sense, I, I absolutely agree that this book is necessary and that what Donnie's talking about is necessary. We had a little bit of interaction about this on, um, on Twitter this week. And Donnie just tweeted, he said, we say cities, Jesus says, mine. We say suburbs, Jesus says, mine. We say small towns, and Jesus says, mine. In other words, there is no part of creation that Jesus isn't interested in. And I want to just leave that there as a given before I now tell you why cities are so important. <laughs> so, <laughs> we, we need to understand the influence of cities in the modern world because it, it massively plays into what we're talking about here, of the church's call. Two things particularly, urbanization and globalization, that firstly, that there are more people in cities now than at any point in history. And that is not just a banal fact. That is an increasing, an incredibly important reality of the world we live in. That the world that we live in is becoming citified. And that that matters to God. The way Tim Keller puts it is he says that when you look at a city, there is more image of God per square foot than in any other part of God's creation. Which explains why God is so interested in and loves and passionate for cities. In his book, Center Church, he talks about what's going on in the world at the moment. And he, he was, when he was writing this, he was writing from ministry in central New York, very similar to, what, uh, to our context here in central London. And he just talks, he said, in 1950, New York and London were the only world cities with a metro population of over 10 million people. I actually don't feel like London was that big back then, but I'll take his word for it. In any case, he says, there are more than 20 such cities now, 12 of which have reached that in the last two decades. And that is just the beginning of what's going on right now. It goes on and says that, you know, in Europe, we experienced a transition where the city became the central focus. 75% of European population lived in cities and 25% out in, in the countryside. And he said, if that trend continues into, into Asia and Africa as it's doing right now, listen to this, he says, the next three decades will see over half a billion people move into the cities of Africa and Asia alone. In other words, one new Rio de Janeiro every two months. He says, by most estimates, we've reached the point where over 50% of the world population now live in cities, compared to 5% two centuries ago. I, I think that's striking. This is urbanization. And there's also this thing going on called globalization. Which just means that in a way the world is becoming smaller because of increased connectivity. That I can be friends with somebody in Tokyo if I wish or uh, learn from and understand what's going on in that part of the world. And this makes the world a smaller place. And part of that of course is the power of the internet. Now a lot of people would have thought that when the internet arose that suddenly the, the need to be together in tight spaces like cities is no longer necessary. Like why would you pay more to live in a smaller space, breathe worse air, experience more congestion and traffic and frustration in day-to-day -day life 
In, in other words, why would you choose to have a lower quality of life on many, many measures, not be able to get to the beach, not be able to climb mountains, all those kind of things that you imagine you would do if you didn't live in the city? <laughs> what, what, why do we make these choices you know, when surely the internet's made all those, that redundant? We don't need to be in cities anymore. And actually, the very opposite is true. That as the world becomes more connected the place of cities in the world is growing in their importance. And you see a few of the, the, the things that play into this. I mean, Keller describes it like this. He says, this urbanizing influence now extends far beyond the city limits, affecting even the most rural areas of remote countries. Children in Mexico and Romania are becoming more like young, young adults in Los Angeles and New York City than the adults in their locales, in their own locales. He's saying basically that the city's importance and place in the world is growing and growing and growing and becoming massively dominant in terms of influence and world culture. And that people want to be in the city, that the city is a sexy place to be, an interesting place to be, a stimulating place to be. And a few of the things that come out of that are, firstly, that heaps of people are moving around the world, but they're moving into cities and from city to cities. A lot of you have come from major cities around the world to be in this city. That heaps of young people are moving into cities. Just look around at the faces in the room for a second. Do you know the demographic of this area? Most people in this area are under 30. It's a freak of being in central London. It makes me feel old. And that there is massive cultural influence in cities. Like Jesus said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And in fact, that, that, is, that is, trend is increasing in the world at large with all the big cities. That they are becoming, as some people describe it, upstream. That they influence the world around them massively. And I now just want to ask you this question. Why are you here? Why did you come to London? How many of you grew up here? Can I see just a show of hands for it? Okay, I'd say that's a relatively small percent, maybe 5% of the people in this room. In other words, all of the factors that I've already been describing to you influenced your choice to be here. If you were born 50 years ago or 100 years ago, you wouldn't be here if it weren't for urbanization and globalization, right? Our church is very much being shaped by these forces to some degree. And we can either, we make a choice at this point, we either become passive recipients of this, these facts as being just currents around, going on in the world around us, or we understand that our place in history is to actively be involved with what God is doing in the world by being in the city. Which brings me to the last thing I want to say to you guys. That we are called to this city. I think this is kind of the logical consequence of everything I've been saying to you so far, right? We're called to influence. Cities are the place of influence. We're called to the city. If you were to read this passage, you're the soul of the earth, you're the light of the world, and ask yourself, what does obedience to Jesus look like in 21st century world? I think for many of us, our hearts have settled. And this happened to me a long time ago, settled with the conclusion it means I need to be here. I'm not going anywhere unless God sends me. Even when it gets inconvenient or difficult, I'm called to be here. I feel it with a burning passion. 
I feel wedded to the city. I don't want to leave the city. I'm bringing up our kids in the city. Now, of course, I, I absolutely accept that God has unique callings on every person. One of the amazing privileges of becoming Christian and being part of the family of God is understanding that God has a unique will for your life. It's a wonderful, amazing experience to know that he has a purpose for you. The Bible speaks about that regularly, that God knew us and knitted us together in our mother's womb. You're not an accident or a product of chance. You are purposed by God, and therefore God also has a story for you. And I recognize that within the plans that God has for you, some of you are not necessarily going to be in London forever. If I had my way, you would be. But I understand I'm not Jesus and I'm not the Lord. And that he, he has, he's going to do things with you that I can only dream of and take you all kinds of places. And that's great. That's fine. I surrender to his lordship in this area. <laughs> do. But, but, but. I think we can say this, and I'm where I'm hoping you've got to by this point in the message and in the series, is to say wholeheartedly and passionately, we are meant to be here right now. This is not an accident of your life. God wants you here. And if we're saying that, then you understand that our presence matters. When Jesus decided to save the world, he came among us. He incarnated, he took on flesh, that's what the word means. And he dwelt among us, John tells us in John 1. He came and lived among us because he wanted us, because he wanted the world. So Jesus laid out a pattern for us of what it looks like to do his work and his mission is you've got to get in to where the action is. You've got to be among. And that's the gospel that Jesus came down for us. He didn't stay on his throne in heaven as a son of God at the Father's right hand. He came to get us. Came to do a saving work for us by dying on the cross for our sins. And if we look at what's going on in the world at large, and we understand that there is this massive precipice between humankind and what it means to know God, and that they got, people need to know Jesus. And when you understand that the, the world is moving into cities far more rapidly than the churches. That you might look at London and think there's plenty of churches. You understand that we need thousands more churches in London just to serve the growth of a city like this, not to mention to change a city like this. When you understand these factors, you begin to realize that God wants his people here. I want to ask a, a final question then as we just kind of understand what this means for us. What should characterize our presence in the city if we're called to be here? And I, I want you to think of these three things. That first of all, we need to foster a love for being here. I don't think Jesus, in, in the way he modeled mission coming into the world, he was not begrudging. And angry to find himself suddenly wake up one day and be like, I've got a body? What happened? Like, I've been, I'm in the smelly earth? It wasn't like that. He intended to come. And the Bible says that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. It was the, the love and compassion for the world that Jesus took on flesh. That he would save the world. Now, I think this has to be stated because I've heard a lot of people who 
say things like this, that the reason I'm in London is because I've got a Jonah call. So Jonah, ancient Israelite prophet sent to Syrian um, or Assyrian uh, empire to go and preach in a big city called Nineveh. And you've got to realize Jonah is not the hero of that book. Jonah is, he is an absolute idiot. I mean, the guy, he hated Nineveh. And to take upon yourself the identity of being like Jonah, I don't, I, I don't think that's cool. I don't think that's a good thing. I think that's a bad thing. I, think, I don't think we want to emulate Jonah in our day-to-day life. Jonah, like angry, hating what he's, God's called him to do, having to be dealt with by God on numerous occasions, being, you know, drowning in the sea, being swallowed by a fish, being, you know, being constantly chastised by God because he hates doing God's will and being where God's put him. So being Jonah, I've heard pastors talk about this, being like, I felt a Jonah called to be in the city. Like, oh, I'm so sorry for you. You know, like, <laughs> poor you. You know, I, I just think in that situation, just leave. Or see what God does with you anyway. <laughs> He's going to deal with you. And, you know, when I think, what it, does it mean then? Why is it so important to foster a love for London? Well, here's one reason. This is what, again, Keller's been so helpful to me on this stuff. Just changed the way I thought and think about this issue. But he, he just made the point. Lots of people love living in the city that you're in. It's true, isn't it? A lot of people give their left arm to live in London. A lot of people around us just want to be here. What does it say to the world when we're just like so begrudging of being in a city like this? Is there anything appealing? Is that salty? Is that, is that light to draw people into the kingdom when we're just like whinging and moaning about what it means to live in London? And if our church, also consider this, if our church is full of people who don't love the city that we're in, our church is going to be doomed to an excessive problem of transience. Now this is always a problem in big cities where people come and go all the time. But it will be excessively true of us if we don't foster a delight in the city that we're in. And what makes the church stable, what makes the church a home within, and a sanctuary within the city is that the people who are here love being here and are committed to being here. Right? We need to love the city because God loved the world. And he loves this city himself. Here's a second thing. I think we need to be holy while we're here. Jesus says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? While the call to be a believer in London means building massive amounts of common ground with the world around us, loving Many of the same things that Londoners love, being passionate about the city and its, the things it enjoys. At the same time, we're also called to an extraordinary distinctiveness. The people ought to be able to look at your life as an individual and also look at us as a church and say, these guys are different. These guys are profoundly different. They're not weird but the different. Because the inner workings of your heart are being changed, that you are being made pure. That your, your motivations in life and the things that you pursue are for God and for his glory and not for yourself. That you're humble. That you're pure in the way you treat people of the opposite sex and the same sex. That you are given to 
to loving others before you love yourself. All of this is what it means to be holy, right? And all of it is what it means to be salty. When you are like that, that's when you start to have an influence. Holiness comes first, friends. You pursue holiness and radical holiness. I think God takes care of your impact in the world. When you try to blend into the world, you lose who you are. You lose who God has made you to be. Understand who you are in Christ. Understand what it means to be a child of God and let that holiness start to shake people and situations around you. It's a compelling thing when people see it and it's an attractive thing. Remember that psalm that we read in the first part of the series talking about Zion. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of the whole earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. It's a psalm of praise about God's city, Zion, which we said is now his church. When people look at the church and see something extraordinarily different about us. The purity of our conduct. They are compelled by that. Maybe that's the reason you came to church. That you know there's something different about people here. And I promise you, it's not because we are better or think we're better. It's because the power of a God is changing our hearts. And he can change your heart too. That's part of what we believe. And here's the last thing I want to say to you. We need to do good here. I think you can have one of two basic attitudes to the city. You can either think of the city as something from which you are mining benefits for your own life. You you came to the city to find a spouse, to further your career, to get on the property ladder and to... Um, experience the pleasures of the, of the playground that is London. And you can look at it as a kind of walking into an orchard with no fences and just like going crazy and eating all the fruit and being like, this is amazing. And just gorging. And it's like that. I think a lot of people approach London like that. Like focused, I'm going there to get what I want from the city. Or the other way is you, you understand that you're here to show the love of Jesus to the city. Can you see how it's a completely different orientation of life and of heart that we're called to live outwards? That's what Jesus says when he says you're the light of the world. He says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As Christians, our model is always Jesus himself who didn't come into the world to pillage the world and abuse people around him. He was a powerful man But you will never hear an accusation against Jesus of the way he abused his power by manipulating and seducing women or or causing harm to others by excessive use of force and power and all these kinds of things like so many powerful men in the world are doing today. You won't read of Jesus coming into the world to indulge himself. To take, to take, to take in that way. That's not how we read Jesus when we read the Gospels. When you read of Jesus in the Gospels, you understand a man with unimaginable power, but using that power in service of the lost and the least and the lowest, the people most needy in the world. That his life is a life poured out. 
And you may take issue with some of the things Jesus said in his teaching, and I wouldn't blame you because he said some strong things. But you read his life and you realize that his whole life backed up his credibility. You cannot fault him. He's an extraordinary and singular man. And no accusation against him has ever stuck. Because he was not living inwardly, he was living outwardly. This is why we worship Jesus, friends. He's the only one who lived that perfect life. He's the only one who died his death, the death that you deserve to die. Which, of course, is the ultimate and final act of a man who came to give his life rather than to take from others. And I believe that if that is the pattern of the gospel, that in Jesus we have a savior who demonstrated what it means to come in and live for the world rather than to take from the world, I also think that ought to be the pattern of the way we live our lives as Christians. That we're called to the city to do good to the city. And I don't think as a church we've fully begun to understand what that means for us corporately. And I believe that's part of our journey in the years to come. Absolutely. But I don't think that the responsibility just lies on the leadership of the church. I think it lies on every believer to understand you are salt, you are light. And God has called you here to bless this city. To seek its welfare, like it says in Jeremiah 29. 